Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I am delighted to be here with Sam Arbisman, who is a public intellectual as well as a practitioner of science. He is the scientist in residence at Lux Capital, which is fascinating. And he's also the author of several books um, with a new one forthcoming on code. Um, I was particularly taken with his book called The Half-Life of Facts, um, which uses the metaphor of half-life uh, you know, the time that it takes uranium, for example, to uh, deteriorate um, as a metaphor for the way that knowledge itself is impermanent, albeit on different timescales. So welcome, Sam. Thank you so much. It's great to be talking with you. My first question is, do you think that the half-life metaphor applies to things like wisdom? That's an interesting question. I, I would say, I would tend to say probably no, I think wisdom is kind of, and people always use like this like perennial term of like, or like the term of like perennial wisdom, uh, which kind of would imply that maybe there is not a half-life or at least there is a much longer half-life. Um, I happen to be a big fan of writing, which I, of certain types of writing that I call like modern wisdom literature and like modern wisdom. Um, but oftentimes it's not, uh, it's not anything new. It's often, it's wisdom and ideas from, millennia ago, but kind of applied towards new situations. And so I would view it as there's a set of kind of principles and ideas that maybe wisdom embodies, but it's kind of, it can be applied more uh, effectively by kind of tailoring it to technological changes or societal changes. Um, so I would say if it does have a half-life, uh, it has a very, very long half-life. Like centuries long or millennia long. So one that's beyond our ability to measure its half-life or what do you think? Like Carl Jaspers talked about the axial age, which was a moment I think around 600 or 500 BCE um, when let's say Buddha and Socrates and Isaiah all lived and they were all maybe upgrading religious priors from being more uh, magical thinking to focus more on like humanistic morality and universalizable things and um, he, he thinks there's some ether in the air. So it's not that like Buddha influenced Socrates or Isaiah influenced Buddha, but that they're sort of all responding to the same zeitgeist. Would that, would that be an indication of, um, of wisdom having some kind of progression by epoch? I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure I can speak to kind of that specific situation. I definitely, th I mean, yeah, there, there might've been like this kind of an efflorescence of, of wisdom millennia ago. Um, at the same time though, I mean, I actually, I wrote this, I wrote something about, um, like Ecclesiastes in the age of progress and kind of like, I mean, like there are certain ideas that were foreign to the ancients and kind of like in wisdom literature. And so, for example, like one idea is this idea of progress. And so I mean, certainly the world changes, but in terms of this idea that there is this kind of human, um, human made, not necessarily march of technological progress because it's kind of not happening outside of us. It's kind of dependent on each of us kind of contributing towards technological progress, economic progress, progress in kind of how we think about the world and morals. Um, these things are all changing. And I think for the the ancients, in terms of wisdom, there was kind of this sense of not nearly the same level of change and kind of like act like where our, um, our, our, our state of affairs and kind of like, like the technologies we use and things like that, like these things were not shifting quite the same way. And so I do think certain big ideas um, need to be incorporated differently. Uh, so like whether it's this, the idea of progress, which is probably only maybe on the order of like 500 years old, um, or the idea of what science is. Um, and, and to be clear, like science is not just a body of knowledge. It's really just like a rigorous means of querying the world. Um, 
And that being said, that sort of idea of science is relatively novel. Um, and I would say like wis wisdom in the best sense should coexist with kind of scientific progress and scientific advances and the scientific framework for thinking about the world. And so um, on that level, yes, there, I would say there is kind of a, a half-life for some of it because it, like, if wisdom does not take into account some of these new frameworks for how we think about the world, uh, then it's not being, it's, it's not doing its job as well as it could be. Um, that being said, I do think it's one of these things where a lot of the, the wisdom that we have, it coexists quite nicely with a lot of kind of modernity and modern ideas. It's not kind of like an either or sort of thing. Tyler Cowen claims that sort of the ancients were predisposed to virtue ethics, which is focused on the individual character um, in large part because they lived in a world with low leverage. And so um, as we move to uh, modernity, where so much of our behavior is scaled out through systems and technology, there's also a shift in moral thinking to utilitarianism. And um, I don't know if there's a metanormative claim there that we should pref therefore prefer utilitarianism, but it's a fascinating explanation of moral theory as in some sense downstream of human efficacy and technology. Do you, would you agree with that? And if you do, then like, what would be the argument against, um, if you will, the half-life of moral reasoning? That's super interesting. I haven't thought about it that much in terms of like the state of affairs kind of dictating kind of the certain moral things. I would say, I mean, I would push back on some of that in the sense that, I mean, yes, we certainly in our kind of like in modernity, there's the ability to scale and kind of we can have higher leverage. At the same time, though, we are in this world of like billions and billions of people. And I, I would say almost like the default state is having very low leverage. We're kind of just kind of one among this kind of many, many large, like much larger population. And this is, this is the reason why, um, and when, when people think about like quantifying social change or like these quantifying like his, his, historical things or like kind of computational social science, it often is not necessarily predicated on single individuals, but kind of almost this like statistical properties of large societies. It's because when you have a, a large enough number of people, there are these kind of regularities. And so that might kind of like kind of allow us to say, well, yeah, you definitely can make a change in the world and like make an impact. And like, that's it's certainly important. And you, but like whether or not that impact is um, something that will necessarily scale in a very large way, um, that is an entirely uh, like open question. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, maybe I would push back on that a little bit, uh, assuming I'm kind of understanding that, that sort of thing correctly. Yeah. Actually, maybe that explains why um, virtue ethics maintains popularity because a certain percentage of the population doesn't actually feel empowered. They may feel less empowered, as you're saying, um, because they're just sort of one of many billions. Um, but it is interesting that amongst the powerful and elite, there might be a new emphasis on utilitarianism over and against the other ones. For example, and this is a bit of a cliche, but like the person who's, let's say, a jerk um, or doesn't have a functional home life, but justifies that because of the, you know, the impact that he's able to have. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I uh, <laughs> yeah, certainly, I mean, I think people, yeah, are trying to kind of think about like, yeah, like, like the, like the bottom line, like whether or not they're making like the best impact possible. And yeah, and like those other things that kind of, we can kind of ignore them or lie them. Um, I, uh, I definitely think then they're, um, there's probably even more of a place then for like for certain kind of yeah virtue ethics or wisdom literature, which is like yeah maybe like we should kind of recognize these things. It's not like these things should ideally 
coexist as opposed to kind of be uh, at odds. One of the criticisms put towards sort of wisdom, religion, philosophy, um, all these more sort of amorphous, uh, you know, how to be good and how to live a meaningful life type uh, approaches from, let's say, the likes of a Karl Popper or um, Carnap or the, the sort of logical positivists is that none of those ideas can be falsified and therefore they can't be verified. So they're therefore epistemologically no better or no worse than astrology or snake oil or whatever Joe Rogan is, you know, telling you supplements to take. Um, uh, and then it, it like if it makes you feel good, fine, it's a placebo. But sort of um, we should stick to the things that can be falsified. I guess how do, how do you see the role of the non-falsifiable in in relationship to the world of knowledge and science that operates through um, through scientific method? So tell me a little bit more about like the, can you give me like yeah some examples of kind of like the non-falsifiable like wisdom claims or things like that? Make sure I kind of understand that. Okay, great. Yeah, that's a good point, right? Um, I think a non-falsifiable wisdom claim would would even just be like, hey, that you matter, for example, that your life has meaning. Well, can you prove that or disprove it? No. Um, but yet we do know that people, let's say, who um, feel that their life has meaning, perhaps, you know, um, we can objectively measure that like they're less stressed and they have more longevity and all those things. But again, a person who's believing that they have a meaningful life <laughs> or purpose in their life in order to get those things, I'm not sure that's going to work out for them. So I, I guess what I'm saying is like there are certain faith claims um, that do seem to lead to a good life and become self-perpetuating practically. But if one were to start from first principles, I'm not sure you'd be able to, to prove it or disprove it. And I'm not sure that you can empirically invalidate it either. I, I don't, I don't want to comment on like all the different claims, um, that, uh, yeah, that are maybe kind of non-falsifiable, but certainly one related to like meaning and mattering. Um, I think that's something that I think, um, maybe there's just kind of like some like definitional issues. Um, so there's the, the philosopher, um, is it Ido Landau at, I think he's at University of Haifa perhaps. Um, he wrote this fascinating book um, called Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World. And he basically says, it's like, like we kind of yearn for these kind of like cosmic meanings or and he's like, really it's more just like, like, like value is a continuum, meaning and mattering as a continuum. Like it's, it's not a matter of like, Oh, like you matter in some like cosmic, like, like infinite sense or nothing. It's like they're in the same way that like, I mean, like you can enjoy doing art, even if you're not this like world shattering artist. And, and so his, his argument is more about, um, and, and, and I would view it as more, he's kind of taking almost like a scientific, more falsifiable, um, approach towards the meaning and mattering, um, I'm not sure he would agree with the way I'm kind of stating that, but I, but I view it as he kind of takes these claims and tries to understand um, how we think about these things and kind of recognizing, okay, like, like, yeah, you might like, you might not matter to and, the asteroids or the moons of Neptune or whatever, but like, that's not often what we're thinking about. And he kind of, he tries to actually take apart the, like the terms we use in terms of like meaning and try to show that there are, claims you can make that are maybe not quite falsifiable, but like much more like justifiable as opposed to kind of things that you kind of just like have to kind of have some sort of leap of faith for these kinds of things. And, and I find that very interesting. And so I, I don't know if that can, that kind of approach can be applied to all these other ones, but I do actually think there is something to be said for this kind of much more, um, 
maybe it's kind of uh, a humble or incremental approach, but it does feel to me kind of closer to kind of this like like the, the approach of reason and science within the realm of wisdom and meaning and mattering. Mm. I think broadly, like any question that's a question of why is harder to verify or falsify because by definition the why is um it's a theory that a person can give you could you could you could for example say that something exists or how something exists and then you could have a very empirical debate about you know what the data shows but then the why is not actually in the data the why is the orientation that you take to the data and maybe just to make that like slightly less abstract we talk about like kuhn and his theory of um how science progresses and almost this idea that if you don't have a worldview, then um, you don't know what what questions to be asking. And so, you if you if your worldview is that um, the Earth is the center of the universe, then for a long time you'll be able to sustain that worldview despite the facts. Yeah, I mean, and this I guess kind of gets to sort of like the like sociological aspects of uh, um, of science of like yeah, like there's not just um, well, I guess maybe not soci- it's sociological and philosophical aspects of it, right? Like you need this kind of like unifying framework to kind of understand and place the various um, facts in kind of a context. I mean, ideally, though, it's in presumably as more and more, more, more facts accumulate that kind of be, that call into question the framework that you have, whether it's a paradigm or a theory or um, whatever it is, uh, then you are kind of going to be kind of more likely to... Um, to kind of question that. That being said, I mean, at the same time, though, in addition to, I mean, one needs these kind of frameworks, but you can also kind of think about just sort of the, there's the framework, but then it's also kind of the, like, the error relative to reality. And so there's, there's this great, um, this great quote from, from Isaac Asimov, where he was, he was corresponding with someone about, um, like, how do we know, how do we know anything? And it was like, this person was saying like, oh, we used to think the earth was flat. We were wrong. Um, and then we thought the earth was a perfect sphere. And it turns out actually it's like a, this like oblate spheroid. And so, and he said, and, and so his, his answer was um, like that we're kind of like asymptotically approaching some sort of like description of reality. Um, of course, it's based on like successive theories. Um, but the same, but what he says is like, he's like, if you think, if you think the earth is flat, you're wrong. And if you think the earth is spherical, you're wrong. But if you think, that like both of them are equally wrong, then you're wronger than both than both of them put together. And then the, the, the interesting thing that he then next does though is he then provides like the amount of error for each model relative to the reality of our planet. Um, and he says, oh, like that flat Earth, it's like this this many inches or feet per per mile or whatever it is. And he kind of shows that like each one, even though these are completely different mental models of the world. So like if you if you think the earth is flat, that is a wildly different mental image and like theory or kind of framework for thinking about the world than thinking it's, it's a perfect sphere, which is in truth much closer to reality. He actually shows that they all kind of cash out in terms of error and uh, in terms of like the amount of error. And uh, and I feel like that's the same kind of thing. Like when we have these different mental frameworks, um, at some point we have to kind of think about, okay, how well do these frameworks, and not just in terms of like their mental usefulness, but there's also just like usefulness in describing the world that we see around us, uh, and the larger the error, the the more the more we have to contend with the fact that maybe this this model is not just um, a simplification, but could be like wildly wrong. 
One point of clarification on error. So I know in the ancient world, science was mostly descriptive, or at least that's what I was understood. Like Aristotle thought science was basically just go out and look at things and <laughs> taxonomize. Um, and then sometime around the early modern period, let's say with Bacon, um, science becomes more about manipulation and um, what you can do with your descriptions, but also taking things out of their natural habitat and actually, you know, inventing the laboratory. Does error mean the same thing in both of those paradigms? Or do you think the, the concept of error has itself undergone a transformation? So I think, I mean, error, error can be studied sometimes more easily, depending on that. And that being said, I mean, we still have certain fields that are very much kind of this like descriptive or kind of more historical, uh, historical. Like, so for example, um, astronomy, and we can't go out and like smash stars together and kind of figure out what's going on. We have to say, okay, like this is, <laughs> this is, this is the galaxy in the universe that we have and let's observe it as best we can and kind of be more and more clever. And you can see this also in, um, with, uh, and like the social sciences where people kind of look to, and there are sometimes you can, and in some, some say, some cases you can do experiments, um, whether it's like, uh, like surveying college students or whatever, um, and like asking them questions or showing them images or whatever. But a lot of it is like relying on natural experiments and saying, okay, like, like this state changed its law in a certain way um, at this one time, but this other one didn't. And until then they were kind of basically the same. And then there was this shift. And so let's kind of look at that, um, that, that moment in time when things changed and then kind of use that as a natural experiment. And so there definitely are this kind of like descriptive kind of approach. Um, uh, when you can't necessarily do experiments in, in, in the way where like where it's like rolling balls down inclined planes or things like that. Um, I would say that the more um, experimental sciences just kind of give us a better way of reducing error because we can kind of create these like pristine experimental settings uh, as opposed to kind of just having to take the world as it is. Um, that being said, I mean, and separate from and separate from kind of the like, error and experimental sciences and like more kind of like observational sciences, um, they're uh, like this kind of descriptive kind of approach of like uh, like just kind of descriptive like describing things, taxonomizing, and oftentimes these are kind of the precursor to some sort of theoretical framework. And so, and then often kind of you then have you have you collect data, you describe it, you then create some sort of intellectual framework. And then you do the same thing again, where you, when you start collecting lots of examples that don't make sense, and then you kind of say, okay, maybe we need to kind of think about a new theoretical framework. So there's kind of this constant like oscillation between kind of describing and, and, uh, and, and theorizing. So you probably get a version of this question a lot, but um, should I eat spinach? <laughs> so I mean, spinach is healthy for you. Um, it is, it has kind of changed how we've, uh, over time, we've kind of thought about it's healthiness over time. And actually, so the, um, like this, so, so there's this kind of well-known, um, and I'll, I'll caveat with it, the well-known, but false story of, um, that, uh, that spinach was, um, that like spinach was thought to have like some huge amount of iron. Um, and then, uh, and because of that, I think like, like around the time this was discovered and like, and Popeye, the character was created and he's like, Oh, I mean, spinach is really good for your body. Um, and then the story that, uh, and then it was, and it, but it turns out that the story, and so the, the common story related to spinach is that um, this was the, the idea that spinach was healthier than it actually is, or in terms of has a higher iron content, is that it would turn out it was like a typo. There was like a, a one, one um, like the decimal point was off, um, which is actually, that story was the story I included 
in the original like hardcover edition of my book. Then after that book came out, or actually I think like between the time it like went to the printers and when it was published, um, and so I couldn't, it was kind of like done, it was locked in. Uh, I discovered um, that that story of like the debunking of the, um, like with the decimal point and everything, that story itself is not accurate. It turns out that there was initially some sense that people thought spinach had a higher iron content than it did, but it might've been due to um, some mismeasurement or whatever, but it was actually fairly rapidly um, debunked and fixed. And so, um, but so it was one of these things where the story of the debunking is itself incorrect, um, which itself has many twists and turns. And I, to be honest, don't remember all the twists and turns of the debunking. That being said, this like this false idea of spinach being healthier than it is or having more iron content um, has persisted for a while. And the reason behind the reason thinking it's like healthier than it was, and this is now many, many levels um, deep, um, is has also persisted. And so it's a, this very weird story of um, spinach being kind of this like, exemplar of like knowledge changing, the story about how knowledge changes, changing itself and, and being learned. Um, and I feel like it's kind of the, one of these things where it's like almost like half-lives of knowledge, like all, all the way down. Like it's kind of each level, you kind of learn more and more about these things. The upshot would be, that being said, green leafy vegetables, I think they are still good for you. <laughs> yes. So in that line of questioning for me is like almost two archetypes, right? There's the archetype of the truth seeker who wants to live on the frontier and stay current with the latest science and be somewhat contrarian relative to the conventional view. Um, in order to get an edge. And then the almost like common sense person, let's say like a GK Chesterton type conservative who just says, you know what, like the things you grew up hearing from your grandmother are on the whole, like quite true and it's hubris and self-destructive to sort of um, go searching for your white whale. Is there a, um, a synthesis between those two or are we ultimately just to choose like a temperamentally um, whether we want to be at the vanguard, in which case we could be either really right or really wrong, or, you know, just accept conventionalism because, hey, like facts are always changing. So why try to keep up? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good question. I, and I would say, I mean, certainly even among scientists who kind of like pride themselves as like these as truth seekers, um, it's a lot easier to rejoice at the overturning of some theory when it is not your own. Um, and like many scientists, like, like they will, they might fight tooth, tooth and nail to kind of like, like hold on to their ideas and their facts. Um, but for everything else, they're like, oh yeah, like this is, this is a great idea. And so, and like the, and the ideal view, um, of scientists and actually it was a professor of mine from graduate school. He told me this, this wonderful story where he was, uh, teaching a course, uh, like I was on a Tuesday, he came in and lectured about something. And then the very next day I actually read a paper that invalidated, uh, what he had taught the day before. And so he came in on Thursday, back to the next class, and he said, remember what I taught you? It's wrong. And if that bothers you, you need to get out of science. And so there's this, I agree with you, like there is this sense of like, we want to rejoice. Now, the thing is though, oftentimes when that kind of like rejoicing and working at the frontier and being excited by new things, um, when that uh, percolates kind of down to kind of like the general public, uh, it it creates kind of this um, like misconception. I, I think the idea, that the, the way to think about this is, um, when we read things in the in like the news around science, we are reading about new scientific discoveries, and so as a, as a result of that, like those are the things that are happening at that frontier of knowledge. Those are the things that we are least certain about because that is where all the current scientific work is happening. But because 
most people, when they read about science, are only reading about new scientific discoveries and then like learning, oh, this food is healthy, now it's unhealthy, or this thing was true, then we thought it was not. Um, it gives people, I think, like the general reader, a perception that therefore all is constantly in flux. Versus, I think one way to think about it more productively is like, there is uh, there is kind of this like, core of knowledge that we are constantly adding to and, and it's accreting. Now, yes, some of that will be modified or will change, but kind of going back to Isaac Asimov and this kind of like, um, like understanding the different views of the world, like we are, I would like to think alongside this flux, we're kind of asymptotically approaching the truth. And so yes, things are overturned, but they're not being overturned and over and over um, and so therefore kind of, we have no basis for, for understanding things. Um, and, and there, there are like weird kind of exceptions. So like, for example, uh, my grandfather, when he was in dental school in the 1930s, he actually learned the wrong number of human chromosomes, um, like uh, human chromosomes in a single cell. Um, he actually learned, uh, 48 instead of 46. And, it, but, but the reason why, which sounds like a very fundamental thing. The reason was though, is there was this period of several decades where when this thing was first initially counted, it was using the then current method, but it wasn't actually a great visualization method. And then it wasn't until I think the mid 1950s that they created a better microscopic technique and then realized that they had miscounted. Um, and so I think it's one of those examples where things that kind of we often think are kind of in the core um, might actually be closer to the frontier than we realize because it was actually fairly new. Like now at this point, like 46 chromosomes in a cell, like this is well known. But like the truth is like in the early 1900s, there was a whole bunch of flux around like subcellular organelles and things like that. Um, and so, but yeah, but I would say this is kind of a long way of saying, I think we have to like. The, the way to synthesize it is to rejoice at uh, things changing while also feeling comfortable recognizing that when things change, they are often changing at the edges of our knowledge and the edges of experience. When things are new, yeah, that's that's where, where we know the least. It's where the most exciting things are happening. It's where a lot of flux is going to happen. When things are overturned, it's often because maybe the statistical power was fairly low. Um, but yeah, so I, I would say overall, it's, um, it's a matter of... Uh, I mean, yes, there might be some temperamental things. And I, I think some people temperamentally, when they see these things being overturned, they're like, oh, this, we thought this was true and now it's not. We thought this other thing was true and now it's not. But let's just throw it all out. Like, we can't know anything. We can't know anything. From my perspective, that is very much the wrong, the wrong way of thinking. It is to recognize, yes, we are constantly building on this body of knowledge. We are using these truth-seeking mechanisms and recognizing that science, like scientific knowledge is constantly in draft form. But by and large, we are not like, living on some sort of cognitive, like shifting sands. Like most of what we know, we have very good reasons for knowing and the stuff that we don't know so well, that's because it's still really new. And so we're still working things out. I mean, to me, like just to bring in like finance for a second, this reminds me of Nassim Taleb's uh, image of the turkey that, you know, every day it's getting fed. And then on the hundredth day, it's getting uh, shafted, <laughs> right? And so if if it if it just says, um, "Look, there's progress every day. I'm getting fatter," um, then it's going to miss the concept of like wipeout. I guess that happens in a non-correlated way. So maybe the pushback that you would get on the science is progressing story is like it's progressing, like the turkey's progressing. But then on day one hundred, something's going to come that's going to shatter the entire endeavor. So, like both, I think are true. Maybe it just depends on the scale at which you're looking at it. Yeah, I would say. And so certainly, there's this idea of I think it was like the pessimistic meta induction of science, where the idea is like, oh yeah, like like we've overturned all these other things, but now we really understand what's going on. 
The truth is you could probably say that at any point within scientific history. Um, and of course, things have been overturned. And so, um, yeah, so we have to always caveat that. I do think, though, we are hopefully asymptotically approaching the truth. Um, I would say perhaps this turkey, yeah, going back to the scale, like, it's making theories at like with, with like an N of one. Maybe it should have like collected data about all the other turkeys around it on the farm. And then it would have realized, oh, yeah, after a certain amount of time, things go really bad for these turkeys. Um, so, yeah, so maybe it just, yeah, it's, it needs a little bit more data collection. What do you think is the role that imagination plays either for or against science? So um, in the Romantic period, let's say in Germany, like Goethe was both a great poet and he was also, from what I understand, a pretty decent scientist. And um, he inspired a whole movement that sort of put imagination at the center. But now when I think of imagination, I, te I tend to think of either science fiction um, which, or, or um, people who kind of take on more than they can chew, so to say. So yeah, to tell me about more like the imagination is like, yeah, like, like trying to like grab more than they can, they can, than they can handle. You often find that romanticism in inventors, for example, Thomas Edison. Um, they imagine something before it's actually been proven and that um, imagination leads them to go and make the breakthrough discovery. But the, but then they can also imagine things that don't pan out. Right. And then, and then we say, Oh, that was a fraud. Um, <laughs> or that was a person with a great imagination, but you know, that's not real. That's, that's just science fiction. Um, that's poetry. So I think imagination is like this double-edged thing. Um, and it's also this weird thing that's sort of connected to reason, but very different from it at the same time. Like a lot of modern philosophers had a lot of, um, they gave a lot of esteem to imagination. When you go to school, you don't, you're not like trained in imagination, but if you pull people who are having breakthroughs, they, they would probably ascribe a lot of their success to having a sense for what's possible. So where does that come from? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, that's really interesting. And certainly I, I, I definitely uh, feel that imagination has a, has a great role to play in science and science. I, I think from like, from, uh, from the outside kind of science seems like, Oh, it's just like running like very careful experiments and, and kind of just trying to kind of understand things and kind of like dot the I's and cross the T's. Um, and it's not, I mean, science is, is a very, human and messy endeavor um, in the same way that everything else is. Um, and I think that some of the best scientists are enormously imaginative um, because, and we often talk about like this, like we're taught like the scientific method in schools, okay, like we create a hypothesis and we create an experiment and it's like this very kind of rigorous thing um, and kind of like this very linear, pro linear process. And in truth, science is, it, it, it's, it's not like that at all. Um, yeah, there might be a hypothesis, there might be data, but it's much more, um, around kind of like making imaginative leaps and saying, okay, what if the world were like this way? Now, of course, um, you cannot let your imagination be totally unfettered. Um, it has to be kind of tempered by reality. I mean, that, that's kind of this, like, the, like going back to like science is this like rigorous means of querying the world. Um, it's like imagination and curiosity tempered by what we know about the world. Um, and so what is it like there, there's like some, some great quote of like a, like, about like a beautiful theory slayed by a, by a boring fact or whatever it is. Um, um, and so you can have like as a wonderful theory as you want, but if it doesn't actually accord with reality, then you have to discard it. Um, uh, that being said, I'm not sure. I, I'm not even sure that the quote is like something about a boring, boring fact. I actually, and facts are really exciting. And I actually think, and the other side of imagination that I would 
give kind of pride of place in science is like that of curiosity, like, like finding interesting facts and exciting facts and just kind of just trying to understand things and like having this kind of wonder um, towards reality, I think is very, very important. Um, and the imagination is more kind of saying, okay, like, I'm curious about the world. Let's try to imagine what the world might be like in some sort of framework. And then, then you have to temper it by reality. That being said, I mean, in many imaginative fields, like creative endeavors, um, you often have to work within strictures. I mean, like, I mean, you can you can write I, like as much like as many limericks as you want, but they all have to kind of be in the structure of a limerick. And you can write as many limericks as you want, but they're not they're never going to be a sonnet or a haiku. Like the like there are very clear structural forms, and I feel like the the same thing to a certain degree is maybe with science, which is like you can be imaginative about what the world might be like or kind of like imaginative about what is the kind of what is a really clever uh experimental setup that would actually allow me to understand these kinds of things but it still needs to kind of cash out in terms of like actually being based on the world and 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 being kind of (laughs) being correct um but i definitely think there's a place for imagination this is a uh this is a tough question but what is truth you are correct. It is a very tough question. And to be honest, I'm not sure I have a good answer. I, I don't think I've given that enough, uh, enough thought to, to, to provide anything useful. Okay. Um, here's an interesting story. You might know this one, but it's one of my favorite stories from Rabbi Nachman of Ratzlav. So it's called, I think it's called The Humble King. Do you know it by any chance? Uh, I'm, I might not know it by the name, but yeah. Do it. Okay. So, um, so there's a, a king who collects portraits of all the other kings that exist. And he has all of the portraits of all the kings except for one. Um, so he sends his viceroy on an expedition to go find the portrait of the missing king. And the viceroy goes to this society and he finds that this society is filled with mockers um, and comedians who are cynical and they just laugh at everything and they're super corrupt and like, there's the, he goes through all the court system and like, it's just run on bribery and, (laughs) um, there's no truth anywhere is what he discovers. Um, and then he's thinking to himself, like, where's, where could this King possibly be? Like he's nowhere to be found. And then, um, he's like asking around and asking around. And finally he's brought to the palace of the King. Um, and the King is hiding behind a curtain, like in a small back room. And he says like, how can you possibly, Oh, your your seal is that you're the king of truth um, and greatness and glory. Like, how can you preside over a society that's a society of lies? And and the king says, like, thank you for asking. Um, Like, I thought you'd never ask kind of a thing. Or like, yeah, like, no wonder you found me here, like hiding, like you get it. Um, (laughs) And then um, the, the viceroy takes the portrait of the king, presumably the king reveals himself and brings it back. That's the end of the story. Um, the reason why I mention it, I think, is just the idea of like the king whose seal is truth, um, hiding in the world that's run on lies and mockery and cynicism. There seemed to be something in this idea of connecting truth and humility, that the truth wanted nothing to do with this god awful world, so to say. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious if you interesting. You yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was unfamiliar with that story. Um, no, it's an interesting one. I. If this is going to help. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is going to get me any closer to like my definition of truth, but I would say I definitely think this kind of like humility towards what we know is very important. Uh, 
at the same time though, wrecking like being kind of like cynical or dismissive or kind of like uncertain for uncertainty's sake never feels like a productive effort. So like there's always there's kind of this happy medium of like, okay, like where do we find truth? Um, there are some people it's like, oh, we know exactly what it is, we're done. And like they're very, very certain. And there's other people like we will never know. Um, and like everything we think, everything you think you know is wrong. And it will always be like and it will all things will always kind of be be overturned. And and like neither one of these are productive ways to operate. Um, we kind of, it's like the, like, like the phrase of like, like strong, like strong beliefs loosely held or whatever it is. I'm not sure that, that, that that's the kind of the right framework, but the idea of like, like recognizing that we have made great strides in kind of understanding the world is very important. While at the same while at the same time, being willing to admit failure or admit weakness or admit error. Um, these things are also very important. Um, now I'm not sure that provides a good definition of truth, but I'd like to think that that kind of mindset is the one that hopefully allows us to productively get close to that, which is true. Mm. There's a book by a French guy, I'm forgetting his name, but it's called, did the Greeks uh, believe their myths? And it's a rhetorical question because the, the argument is that they didn't. Um, and so we moderns look at them and we say, oh, you know, they did all these sacrifices and they they bow down to Zeus. Um, but if you would actually talk to them, maybe they, they tell you directly, or maybe you just find out indirectly, they were kind of as cynical as us. Um, they went through the motions and they showed up and like, maybe they said the prayers, but fundamentally, like it didn't act, it wasn't part of their worldview. It was more just like, we might say <laughs> in our context, they were orthoprax, but not orthodox. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think if we, I don't know if we accept that thesis, it, it for me raised the question of why should we value truth seeking when so much of society actually runs on just doing what's practical or what allows you to get along functionally in terms of society's values. And like we make a mountain out of a molehill when we kind of require the threshold to be, is this true? The Greek myths, I mean, they have persisted for millennia. I don't think necessarily because people think they're true, but because they're great stories. They have lessons. There's like, there's kind of an ambiguity that provides a great deal of like depth and um, reinterpretation and revisiting that I think allows us to kind of think about these things constantly. Um, and I mean, and actually I know I was re reading more recently that it's not, also like, they're not even like canonical versions of these. Uh, and there's like reasonably canonical versions of like these Greek, Greek myths, but like they often, they were modified year after year, generation after generation, kind of each generation kind of making them their own and saying, okay, like, like we'll take these, these stories and kind of like, like sand them down, mod like adding something to it, um, kind of modifying it. And, uh, and right. And, and if they were like, if there was a canonical true version, um, this kind of thing might never be possible. And I think, I think that kind of approach of like saying, okay, these are like, these are useful and powerful and beautiful things independent of kind of their, their truth value. These are like, like, like the Greek, like the ancient Greeks would say like, like, these are stories. They're my stories. They're very meaningful. Um, whether or not they actually happened the way, um, the way they're laid out is almost kind of like irrelevant for, um, for like the power of these stories. Um, in the same way that, uh, fans of Sherlock Holmes, I mean, they're kind of almost like 
agnostic as to whether or not Sherlock Holmes existed. And of course, I know he's obviously a fictional character, but like many of the, many of the fans of Sherlock Holmes are like, he's kind of real, but also not real. And like, they kind of like, it's like this weird ambiguity. Um, but like, it doesn't matter because, because uh, these are great stories. Uh, and so I think in certain situations, maybe to kind of get hung up on the truth of something is to almost like misread the genre. Uh, and so like, like ancient Greek mythology, like it, like the genre is not, okay, this is the way, uh, and maybe for some people it was like, this is the way the world was created or kind of how it works. But I imagine for many other people, the genre is more about like, these are like, like it's myth. Like these are, these are lessons. They're kind of give, giving us a sense of like our place in the universe, our cosmos. And so I think that might be a productive way of approaching it. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I, I very much resonate with this idea of like the, the genre error <laughs> where you, you know, you're, you're evaluating, let's say the, pa the Passover uh, ritual through the lens of, historicism and you say hey but you know there's no proof that the exodus happened it's like my finding this to be a meaningful story does not depend upon the historicity of the exodus um but i guess for for some though it actually does so that's that's maybe where the that's that's where one of the challenges would be and then the other would be um when you're pouring resources time energy um politics um into certain rituals, you're saying, hey, these are mandatory or these are worth doing and we're going to give uh, from the civic pot to uh, subsidize these things or whatever. Then all of a sudden, like, you can understand the skepticism of like a Richard Dawkins type who's like, well, if it's not true, like, why should we support that? Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I think, I mean, in the United States, we have like separation of church and state, which kind of makes some of those kind of decisions a little bit cleaner. Um, yeah, in, the, in the UK, there is a state religion. Um, but, uh, but you're right. Like it's right. It's, there is, um, yeah, I, I think there's a very defensible reason to say, oh yeah, we, we should not be supporting these kinds of things because I mean, many people are kind of like yeah, trying to make truth claims. Um, although I, again, yeah, I think a lot of these might be like misreading of genre where it's like, yeah, these, ancient Greek mythology is not a science textbook. Um, and to kind of assume it is, is, a, yeah, is, is could, could be problematic and, and can create a lot of issues. So you're an academic by training, but you live institutionally in a venture fund and you also write on the internet and, you know, I would say you're like uh, an independent um, as well. So I'd be curious to know, like, what have you learned from each of those modes? Like, what do they afford? Um, and then how has your experience of science changed being in academia versus being in, uh, in, in investing? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, so in terms of like, yeah, like my experience with kind of like, yeah, my, my different experiences in science. Um, and one, one thing I would say, maybe this is kind of like one way to get at this is when I think about, uh, when I think about science, um, there's a huge number of activities that are kind of valuable for science. Um, but there's a, so there's many, many things that are, that are valuable, but there's only a, uh, a subset of those that are actually kind of valued by scientific academia. There's like, okay, like these are the things that get you tenure. Um, and it's a pretty narrow subset of things like, like doing research, writing papers, um, like that, that sort of, and teaching and things like that, but like, like it's that sort of work. But, um, for me, I mean, well, I, I have, I've done scientific research. I'm not like doing kind of that sort of science, traditional scientific research, um, currently, but I, find um a great deal of excitement and kind of the translating like translating ideas to a popular audience synthesizing ideas kind of assisting other scientists and connecting different people and i'd like to think that those activities um, are also valuable 
for kind of science or kind of knowledge creation. Um, but yeah, but those are the kind of things that are, are not, they're, they're, they're the things you don't really do in academia. And so for me, uh, I, I feel very fortunate that I kind of am in a role where I get to kind of um, be thinking about and helping bring science, like scientific ideas to kind of the marketplace or connecting different people together or engaging with the public through, through writing and speaking about the ideas that I'm exploring. Um, and, and I think, yeah, those are, um, those are important, uh, tasks, I think in the world of science. Um, and I, yeah, and I, I feel fortunate that I can kind of do those different kinds of things, um, without necessarily having to worry about, okay, when I'm yeah writing on the internet, is this the kind of thing that would be like a peer reviewed article? Um, and the answer is, they're like not no like it's a very different and going back to genres like it's a very different sort of genre of work um but i still think uh it kind of maybe adds something in kind of a, a small way i also think that um vent, like venture and investing um in terms of like science and technology um like we are not the ones um we're, we're not the one we're not the ones like building tech companies or creating nice new scientific advances we're kind of helping them kind of be the most successful version of themselves, um, kind of helping hopefully like catalyze a lot of these things, whether it's connecting or providing, pro providing, like providing funding and things like that. Um, but we're much more like midwives to innovation as opposed to the, sorry, the innovators themselves. I, I, I do have an, I, I like to think I can kind of scratch that creative itch and kind of innovative itch through my writing, but, um, but it's much more kind of this assistive, like, like intellectual midwifery kind of role. Um, and I happen to find that incredibly uh, empowering and fulfilling. Um, but I also recognize that it is, that is certainly not for everyone. Hmm. How much was put into like, let's say finding the Higgs boson? That I don't know. A lot of money. But A I, lot of I money, imagine, right? I imagine it would be millions, but yeah, to be honest, I, I'm not sure. Of the, I, I'm not sure of the amount, but yeah, it would be a lot of money. Public, public money, right? Or like, uh, or, um, or how, how does, how does the funding work for that? Something like that. I assume that? at least some of it came from like the National Science Foundation yeah. and kind of other similar organizations. So I guess like my, my question on that, like, I, I think it's awesome. Let's say that we know about the Higgs boson and I love, you know, I love the, the photos. <laughs> um, but like, that's a lot of money to spend. Right. Um, and you could you could argue from an ROI point of view that the optionality is embedded in that discovery, and we'll figure it out later. You could also argue who cares about ROI? It's just good to do this. Um, but when you're stacking up all the possible ways to spend a dollar against one another, like how do you evaluate um, from a capital allocation point of view which scientific projects deserve funding? And when I say you, I guess I mean both. Like how do you, Sam, think about it if you were the man in charge? Like, how does Lux think about it? And like, how should the government or like a more common interest uh, point of view think about it? That's a really good question. And I think, I mean, I mean, certainly from like the venture perspective, I mean, we have to kind of recognize like there are like enormously valuable scientific research endeavors and scientific projects. Um, they are not necessarily the kinds of things that can become like venture scale startups within kind of the time, like within the, the lifespan of a venture fund. Um, so there are certain things. So th th there is a subset of like scientific ideas that can kind of become companies. Um, and those are the things that are kind of fundable, but, uh, but there are many others yeah, that are just not, and like, they can be very valuable, very important, like discovering the Higgs boson or doing certain things with black holes or whatever it is. Um, those are just not the kind of things that make sense from a venture perspective. That being said, 
the way I view kind of like investment in science as a whole is like, ultimately there are different, there are different types. There are different scales. There are different kind of places with like kind of on that stage, maybe towards some eventual ROI. And as a result, there are different funding mechanisms for all these different kinds of things. Um, and so there are, I mean, there's like the National Science Foundation or NIH for kind of basic research. And I actually, and I, and one of the reasons you're, you're mentioning, like, like you mentioned, like these things, like don't necessarily have immediate kind of translational application. Sometimes some do, and many things do, but there's many, a lot of stuff that's kind of more basic research, more kind of more fundamental understanding of a cosmos or, or a biology, things like that. And these are just, and these are public goods. And I, and, and the, and the important thing about like a public good for knowledge is like, it should be supported by the public. And I, I think like a government role for kind of basic research is very, very important. Um, that being said, there are um, be, uh, the government, uh, being a government, like it has to be somewhat risk averse and kind of how like there's some risk aversion or maybe it has to be somewhat kind of um, based on consensus of like where the next things are going. And so then there is the place for other funders who can kind of come in and say, let's be a little bit more contrarian or non-consensus or earlier than the government might feel comfortable. And there you might get certain philanthropic foundations or individuals who kind of give seed grants and things like that. And so um, I definitely think there is this nice kind of like funding ecosystem that is growing and it's continuing to grow and it's continuing to change over time. But each of the different kind of species within this ecosystem or, or different types of um organisms um, and funders in this case, um, they all have kind of their, their different niches of like things that are riskier or things that are basic research or things that are more applied or things that maybe might be a little upstream from what a, a venture investor might be willing to invest in, but still could have some sort of ROI on a longer um, time span. And, uh, so they, like, and if, if you are willing to kind of think on fairly long time horizons, there's a lot of things you can get done. Uh, and with even potential, um, like great deal of financial, um, benefits. Uh, and so, uh, I kind of view this as this, yeah, like this, like this ecosystem that is, has some sort of evolutionary processes where if there are gaps, they will hopefully be filled at some point now and not always, because sometimes it's hard and there are still gaps. I, there, there are still certain things that are either too risky or kind of too difficult to do or, or too hard to get funded. Um, and, and I think we have to kind of work towards figuring out how to improve that and whether and it's, whether it's, um, helping raise the status of individuals who are very early funders of things that don't initially seem sexy, but eventually do yield benefits. I mean, I, I, right now, I don't think we valorize foundations that were kind of very early on in funding things that eventually became enormously valuable. And I've seen a number of people who say like, maybe we should, we, we, we should um, like publicly praise these individuals or organizations more to kind of help create some sort of cultural norm that these kinds of things are important. Um, but yeah, there is, there's, I mean, that being said, I and mean, we are, there's, I mean, there's a lot of gaps that we still need to fill, but there are many different types of funding mechanisms, depending on the different nature of, of, of the science or the research or kind of the knowledge production. Does that mean that you basically agree with the status quo in the sense that you think there's each funding body is doing what is appropriate based upon its own risk adjusted view of the returns it's hoping to get. I, I don't think we should be static. I, I definitely don't think like, yeah, it's like, like the, the status quo is not ideal. Um, it can be better. Um, I don't, I, I, at the same time though, I don't think it's one of those kinds of things where it's 
oh, I see problems in the current status quo, and therefore we need to throw the entire status quo out. I think there, there are ways of either incrementally modifying things or kind of changing things from the outside and then um, creating a kind of experimental funding mechanisms. And then if those are shown to be successful, maybe kind of incorporating them into the status quo, such as like the way the National Science Foundation operates. Um, and for an example would be um, whether or not it's like we're operating with prizes or kind of allow like, or maybe funding grants, grant proposals that have a higher variance in their in their rating rather than just kind of having like a higher average. Um, but even like at the level of like different types of research organizations, I think we need a lot higher degree of variation. And oftentimes when you do something sciencey, there, there's not many places or kind of institutional forms you can do that in. There's kind of the, um, there's like a university, uh, academia, there might be like a corporate industry lab. Um, or like some sort of like uh, deep tech startup. But the truth is like, those are just like three points in some weird high dimensional space of potential institutions and or and organizations. And we need to actually be exploring that institutional space. Um, and and gratifyingly over like the past couple of years, like a lot of people, like a lot of new organizational structures have been popping up and people have been trying new things. And I don't know if we've hit on kind of a number of like clear new forms, um, but we definitely need to have that kind of like evolutionary process of trying new things. And I think, yeah, going back to like the funding, I think it's the same kind of thing. Like we have a number of attractors and kind of points in this high dimensional space, but we still need to continue to uh, to explore that space. And maybe we'll find other things. I imagine those new other things that are successful will end up coexisting with many of the other ones or those new other one or, or the, the new ideas that we discover might eventually be co-opted by the current incumbents. I um, in the same way that oftentimes when like, and in, in the United States history of like, like when there's like a third political party, it doesn't necessarily last that long, but oftentimes those, the ideas that it raises, if it's successful, end up getting incorporated within the, like within the larger parties. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that long-term might be, might be most likely. So Peter Thiel has this famous line that, you know, we asked for flying cars and we got 140 characters. And, um, I think there's a story that he tells and a story that you tell that overlap in a, in a place where maybe they diverge. And I'm interested in understanding the overlap and the divergence. So I think um, the half-life of facts thesis seems to point to the same conclusion, which is that over time, there is a deceleration um, in the amount of progress that we can make regarding technological breakthroughs. Um, but whereas Thiel attributes that to some kind of decadence or sclerosis or lack of willpower, um, I hear you describing it more as almost just a, a neutral, just descriptive law of the way that, you know, knowledge works. And so therefore there's like no agency necessarily, but maybe I'm maybe misattributing to you, but how do you think about, um, like I think, I think Tia would say it's bad that once upon a time the government put a man on the moon, and now like we have like Elon Musk is the only one who's trying to do space travel. Like that that points to a cultural shift for the worse. Um, that there's sort of not an, that there isn't that willpower around space travel that there once was. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't necessarily say I kind of like have like this different view. I mean, and, and I guess the one one place it works. Yeah, some of the things around like Half-Life Facts kind of. Um, touches on this kind of thing is the idea that um, like, yeah, if we are asymptotically approaching the truth and maybe the, the advances are kind of getting like smaller and smaller, kind of like we've like picked all the low hanging fruit. Um, and I would say in some cases, yes, but I think it's, it's one of those kinds of things where like when a scientific domain 
or a technological field is new. Yeah, then it's like this like wide open space. There's a lot of low hanging fruit. We can do lots of different things. And then kind of as it moves forward, it ends up feeling as if like everything has been colonized and there's nothing nothing left to kind of to, to do. Um, for me though, um, I think the the solution there is um, to actually kind of like try to actually invent new fields and actually kind of like find like more like open spaces, um, whether it's kind of like more interdisciplinary work. And, and I think, and part of that is um, as science has developed as just like a domain, um, we have had to necessarily specialize because like in order to work at the frontier, like you have to keep on learning more and more and more. And so necessarily you end up having to spend longer and longer amounts of time, like learning smaller and smaller fields in order to kind of make advances. Um, and as a result of that, specialists, yeah, might feel that they are kind of locked in. Um, and I, and I think, um, we, I mean, we need specialists, we need experts. I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna denigrate the, the, that, that kind of thing, but I think alongside that, we also need people who are kind of somewhat more interdisciplinary, maybe sort of more generalist minded who can kind of bridge different domains and kind of connect things together. And, um, and I think that sort of combinatorial approach is often where we find the place for like really big advances and really big kind of like unveiling of whole new spaces. And so for me, um, when I think about kind of like when, whether or not there is like this kind of stagnation of progress and things like that, um, although I have to say, I'm not necessarily sure I buy that argument either. I do think though it, like if there is any stagnation, we can kind of like shock the system out by kind of like beginning to kind of explore other different areas or connecting different things together. Um, there's this kind of like optimization um, algorithm known, known as like simulated annealing where it's kind of like, like things are kind of bouncing around, like you're trying lots of different things and then eventually you kind of like hit upon a few different solutions and kind of work, um, work to kind of optimize those specific potential solutions. But periodically you kind of like still shock the system again and, and then kind of jump around a, a lot more. And I think um, that I'm probably misdescribing mis this whole simulated annealing process, but I think we kind of need the same kind of thing when it comes to how we think about um, scientific and technological progress. It's like, we need to kind of periodically shock the system. Um, but uh, um, that being said, I will also, I am uh, one of the things I feel like when people kind of talk about the like progress of like for like many years, oh, there were all these advances and like technologies and, and airplanes, industrial revolution, and like all these household appliances. And now it's just like, weird like weird informational things on the internet you can get your groceries in seven minutes right I mean, and like, <laughs> at the same time though like like i think we have like we have become so comfortable with like with the prevalence of technology and computation and software is like we've forgotten how unbelievably strange and weird and wonderful it is and so yes i, I there are many like many ways of like quantitatively measuring some of these kind of like slowdowns or difficulty in making advance and things like that. But, um, but I want to kind of push back at, so against sort of the, like, like the flippant thing of like, Oh yeah. Like, like, like these, like, like software and code is like, yeah, it's this like unbelievably fantastic thing. And even like when you kind of bring in hardware and stuff like that, I mean, like, like, like the iPhone is this object that like feels like it was like, like it feels like it's from the future. Um, and we've like, gone from like, oh my God, this is amazing to thinking like, why, why, why is like, why is it out of date? Why isn't it do X, Y, and Z? Um, and so my, so my grandfather, who I mentioned, like the one who like learned about, um, like the wrong number of human, human chromosomes. So he also, um, he also was like a lifelong reader of science fiction. And so he read it some, like basically like, throughout the entire like modern dawn of the genre. And so like, he, he read it. He, I think he read like Dune when it was like serialized in a magazine. Like he, he read everything. And I remember when the iPhone finally was released, 
uh, I went with my grandfather and my father to the Apple store and we're looking at the iPhone and my grandfather said, he's like, this is it. This is the thing I've been reading about all these years. And like, I think we need to kind of recognize like we are living in this age of technological wonders and we sometimes forget that. And I, I think that's something important to, to think about. It's interesting uh, that you mentioned your grandfather's encounter with the iPhone, because um, from my understanding, the thing that turned Warren Buffett into Apple's biggest investor was like a friend of his left his iPhone in his office and then came back for it. And Buffett understood from this person's reaction when he misplaced his iPhone, how important it was to him. And he knew from first principles that any company that could produce a good that would sort of, you'd be lost without it, um, would have a very long runway. And so it was almost like he, he was agnostic about <laughs> the tool itself because he's like a dinosaur, which I, I super respect. And just the idea of almost dispassionately looking at how do we relate to technology tells you more than what the tool is actually doing, which is interesting when you think about it, like, um, Right. Um, what what actual what what tools do we feel that we can't live without? Um, sometimes it actually takes a person who isn't using that to reflect it back to us. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. It's like kind of like when it yeah when these technologies elicit such an emotional response um, that kind of yeah gives us a great deal of insight into uh, and yeah into how we actually engage with these. Um, uh, that is a great story. I love that. I like to conclude the conversation with a little bit of a discussion of Judaism, a uh, religion that we both adhere to in some way. Um, <laughs> so Judaism is exemplary uh, for its longevity and its adaptability. What lessons do you draw universalizing from Judaism for um, longevity more generally? Like, why, why do some cultures manage to last for so long? And if, you know, science in some ways, modern science, especially liberalism, these are relatively new institutions. Um, what do you want sort of practitioners or champions of this new way of being in the world to learn from these older systems that have managed to, you know, live through all kinds of shocks? Yeah, oh, that, that is a great question. I, I think, I mean, I think we often tend towards kind of two extremes of either like, like creation and innovation or kind of maintenance. Um, and so the way to think about that is like in, in kind of modernity, we're like constantly excited by the new. I mean, I, I was just like waxing rhapsodically about the iPhone and things like that. And like these technologies and like, and people, and they want to put a dent in the universe by building some new technology or some new advance or whatever. And, and, um, and we, we kind of prize that sort, that sort of innovation and kind of, kind of constantly making things new. Um, on the other hand, there is kind of this uh, recognition that like maintaining what we have and like fixing things as opposed to kind of just constantly jumping to the new thing. It's also very important. And um, but at the same time, though, in our modern world, um, we kind of forget the importance of maintenance. And I think one of the important lessons of Judaism is just, and I think which allows it to kind of have this longevity is this kind of I, like holding both creativity and maintenance um, as like equally important things. Um, and the idea of like, there is this tradition, there are, there are, there's kind of this like body of knowledge that people are constantly, it's a body of knowledge, but it's also, it is a changing body of knowledge. Like each generation makes it its own. They add to it. They add stories, they add laws, they add interpretations. Um, and, and I think this kind of 
this ability to say, okay, I am part of this long continuum, but I'm not just kind of like this, like cog in the wheel of maintaining this thing, but I am kind of making it relevant for my current moment in time, this kind of balancing of creation and maintenance, I think is something very, very powerful. Um, and it allows, I mean, it allows Judaism to say, okay, like when confronted with a new technology, for example, like what does Jewish law say about these things? Well, we can kind of look in the archives and try to find things that have been discussed. I mean, I mean there, are, there, are, there, there are stories and laws about handling handling epidemics and handling, or there's like weird stories related to things that maybe look kind of like robots or other biotechnologies. And like they, these, like this, this long corpus of knowledge can be mined because it's been around for so long. And I think when we think about um, longevity like as a, in like a modern society is like recognizing that um, it's like, like having that kind of balance of maintenance of, and creativity of saying, okay, like I want to be part of something like with kind of a grand mission, but I also recognize that mission might change over time. Um, it might evolve. I might make it my own. Um, I think these kind of things are very important. I think Judaism kind of has that right balance for creativity and maintenance. For me, the reason that I see that working in Judaism is that there's a theological like founding story, which is the idea that we all were at Sinai, um, whatever that means, right? It's got to be metaphoric. Um, but so a person in 3000 years from now and a person 3000 years ago and an alien, um, should they ever come down to earth, they were all at Sinai. And I think if you have that orientation, then no amount of technological or cultural or political change can really shake you because you feel that fundamentally there is a story of continuity. And so if you accept that thesis, and, and I would say it's more than just a story, it's, it's almost a moral it's a moral obligation to see yourself as continuous with your ancestors and your descendants, even though there's a lot of um, reason <laughs> to, to tell the opposite story, which is the story of rupture. Um, so if you accept that thesis, what can play the role of Sinai for humanity or for the West or for the scientific community, since they don't have the the same theological um, mythic and sort of orient a religious community? That's really interesting. Yeah, I, th I think I mean, part of that idea is, yeah, like making everyone feel like they have like an equal stake in like in like this story that is kind of continuously being told and like you're kind of part of that story. Um, right. And I agree that like when there is kind of this sense in society of massive rupture or massive discontinuity of like, oh, like things now are completely different. And so therefore um, we kind of should overturn everything. Um, right. Then you kind of lose that. Uh now, in terms of what would be the equivalent, I don't know. I mean, that's a really interesting point. I, I think it's, I'm not sure it's like a story that we need to tell, but more about kind of like making it clear to people, yeah, like that we have this kind of common humanity. We all kind of have equal stake in this story of of humanity and like as it continues and like, yeah, and I think we, and it's incumbent upon us um, to each kind of like find our way of um, adding to it, making it meaningful for ourselves, um, learning new things and kind of adding to that corpus of knowledge. Um, that's a, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that that's a really good question. I'm not sure I have like anything like quite as like terse as like the Sinai kind of moment, but, um, but I definitely think have like recognizing that we all have 
a stake because we're all like in this together. And like, yeah, that, that is, that is really vital. So I would, I would like to float a, uh, what do you call it? A, do- a new dogma or a new creed for this kind of new age religion by you and see how it lands. But um, in Judaism, there's the phrase, Asher bachar mikol hamim, um, right? That Jewish people are chosen from amongst the nations for a specific mission. Let's say the mission of receiving the Torah or of observing the Torah. Perhaps humanity also needs an Asher bachar banu, um, but instead of mikol hamim, it's, you know, mikol ha life forms or mikol ha planets um, that they're, Earthlings need to see themselves as special relative to, um, you know, all other possible planets, all other possible galaxies. Why is there life on Earth? Um, why are we the ones doing science and not the apes or the uh, amoebas? And um, there is something theological about that. Even those who think that there could be life somewhere else, um, we haven't met that life yet. And, and even if it were to come meet us, I still think we could sustain Asher Baharbanu who chose us in the same way that um, Jews recognize that there are other nations with other cultures and other missions. And that doesn't detract from our own sense that we have a specific mission. Do you think that we, if, if that were a, a good one, that we should be doing more to impart a kind of humanism alongside just the technicalities of here's how you pursue knowledge, but actually almost like a theological belief in the specialness of humankind. My concern, I think, is more about like the if we have like too much focus on like the specialness or uniqueness of humanity, um, because oftentimes I I almost kind of view it as like the um, it's like this constantly shifting baseline or whatever, where it's like, oh, like humans are the only ones that can use language. Well, there are certain animals that maybe can do that or like humans are the only ones that can use tools. Eh, There's there's like animals that can do that. or and humans are the only ones that can write bad poetry. Well, now we have AI systems that can do that too. And like, there's this constantly shifting baseline. And so I, I would say at the same time though, right? So it's, lo- so it's less about like, what is uniquely human um, and more about what we view as kind of this like, yeah, may- maybe specialness or kind of like quintessentially human. Like, like what are the things that we value as what is, um, like what, what do we choose to kind of um, prioritize? Uh, and, and I think so it's less about like, what do we do that any other species can't or any other AI can't or whatever it is, and more about what we can do that we that we value in kind of our own special way. Um, and so I'm not quite sure that would work for the you know, like helping us kind of like think about in terms of like scientific progress or whatever, but like, it, it, it's interesting. Yeah, so I'm not, I, I, might, I might push back a little bit, but it's, uh, it's definitely provocative. There's definitely a lot of uh, baggage that comes with any sense of chosenness, right? Um, but I do, but I do like the. There's some countertext in the Jewish tradition that undermine, I think, a, pure, a basically chauvinistic view of it, which is like God offered the Torah to every other nation first, and the only reason we got the Torah was because they rejected it. In other words, again, uh, it's not like the the best story in terms of uh, <laughs> there's still a chauvinistic element, but I think it's it it. it takes away the idea of we're special or we're innately different and focuses more on, we got the summons, we got the responsibility. Um, that's what matters as opposed to any particular quality. And so maybe the, the metaphor, the, um, the myth is like God, so to say, went around offering science to all the life forms, but we were the only ones that said, okay, fine, we'll take that burden. And there's a, there's a negative to that, right? Which is like the atom bomb. So it's, you can understand why, uh, in this myth, 
somebody might not want the burden of science. Yeah, that, that is super interesting. Um, I have to think about that more. <laughs> I, I, it doesn't sit particularly well with me, but but it's interesting. So yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time and insight. It was awesome chatting. Thank you. This was fantastic. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.